Good evening. So good to see each one of you this evening as we've gathered to worship midweek and kind of push the pause button to our week and come into God's presence. Psalm 59 verse 16 says, but as for me, I will sing about your power. Each morning I will sing with joy about your unfailing love. For you have been my refuge, a place of safety when I am in distress. But as for me, it doesn't matter what's going on in my life. It doesn't matter whether other people are or not. We've gathered here to worship our God because we know that he's good and he is uh, his unfailing love lasts forever. And so I invite you to stand and let's worship our God. We are 
you've done for us. And as we've sung that from the depths of our being, we are your children. We belong to you. And we thank you for all that you've done for us. And as we sing this next song to say thank you, we thank you that you took us out of our despair and our hopelessness. You took us out of the kingdom of darkness and set us in the kingdom of light, giving us hope, joy, and love to fill our lives forever. been learning this new song simply says I thank God wandering into the night wanting a place to hide as we
that we just sang, Lord. You are so great and you are so awesome. At times as we 
are in your presence can cause us to wonder. But when we're reminded of your word, we know that you did what you did for us because of your great love for us. And even though you are so great and we desire to know you more, to know more of how you do things, to know more about your character, best thing we can do is just stay in your presence and learn all that we can. And each day we learn more and more and understand how great you are. And the wonderful thing, no matter how great you are, we know that there is nothing that can ever separate us. There is nothing that can ever separate us from your love. No life, no death. Of this I am convinced that you are my God. A greater still. That you, my God, a greater still. Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We've got this week and next week, and we'll be finishing 2 Corinthians. And then we'll be moving back into the Gospels, and we'll start in John. And I know we did John in 2019. Uh, We're going to take John a little bit at a faster pace, and just encourage you to kind of think about um, that coming up. Just a lot of really cool things that are happening. I've got to tell you, there's a great opportunity for those of you that, that are on that, that edge on going on the, on the turkey trip, I just talked to the tour agent today, and we have uh, 19 people that are signed up and potentially two more. So we're looking at uh, a good group that's going to be going in October. But it's, and it's, so it's not too late, October 2nd. You want to encourage you to think about going and visiting the seven churches of Revelation. And you think about being over there, and it would be so cool to be, like, be over there when Jesus comes back and just take you from there. That'd be way cool. But you look at just that opportunity, and as the days are, are growing darker, we look at and we see that the, the end times are here. We're, we're definitely living in them. And a couple of things you can be in prayer for. Church camp out, uh, we went up early on Sunday, and there's oh, quite a few people that are there right now, a bunch of people heading out tomorrow. So be in prayer for those that are going and traveling and making good connections with them. Um, and just seeing all that God's doing. But tonight we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. As Paul turns the corner now from chapter 10 all the way to 13, as he finishes this out, he goes from uh, dealing with the church in, in instruction, answering questions, encouragement kind of, kind of side, to now preparing the church for his presence. Have you ever had to have a converse, hard conversation with somebody that you just really didn't want to have? And, you know, you look at it and it's kind of that thing where it's like, ah, you know, we really got to address some of these issues. Well, this is kind of Paul's setting where he's got to address some issues. The church of Corinth had moved away from a good relationship with Paul. They were listening to false teachers. 
that were calling themselves kind of super apostles, as he will kind of tongue-in-cheek declare them. And they were teaching falsehoods about Paul, and they were teaching falsehoods about the gospel. And so within these chapters, 10 to 13, Paul is defending himself. Because what had happened is the church of Corinth had started listening to these false apostles and started following a socialized gospel, which really wasn't the gospel at all. And they were moving away from the centrality of God's word to a gospel that kind of fit their lifestyle. I know that we would not be able to relate to that today, but we see that in time and time again. When you get away from the centrality of God's word, you start running into problems. And so the church of Corinth had become this church that was filled with great pride. Look at all that we've become and great philosophy. We are so wise in our own mind and all of these things to the point that Paul was losing any authority and they, they pushed back against his apostolic authority within that. Now, keep in mind, Paul helped bring this church about. He planted the seed and he evangelized there in Acts and he had come, so, so he's treating this church as if it was their child. A delinquent child that has moved away. And he's having to have that hard conversation with his semi-adult child. Now having to correct them within this. And so these are some strong speech that, that Paul is going to bring about to them in this. And again, what had happened? They become self-deceived. There is a danger to all of us. With, of being self-deceived. When we start believing in ourself more than God, does that create a problem? Sure it does. When we start thinking, well, what I'm doing is right in my own mind, that becomes problematic. And so Paul has to correct this. And he uses, and, and we find quite a bit of sarcasm from Paul in the Bible. So I, I guess in some contexts it's, it's good for correction in that. Well, let's start right off into chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, where Paul's saying, get ready because I'm coming. He says, now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. I ask that when I'm present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war against according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful in, for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience, whenever your obedience is complete. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself let, that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself. Just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by our letters, when absent, such persons we are also indeed when we are present. 
So Paul opens up and he says, look it, I'm coming to you. But what's interesting about verse 1 is his attitude. If you look at verse 1, what do you see as Paul's attitude in the way he comes to the church? Is he bringing the hammer? It says in meekness. Paul is coming in meekness. He says, I myself urge you by the meekness and the gentleness of who? Of Christ. One of the things that we shy away from with that word meekness is we, we attribute meekness to weakness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness literally is power under control. There are so many people that paint the portrait of Jesus as being some wimpy little guy that, you know, couldn't do anything. He just, just really, no. He was a son of a carpenter, a carpenter by trade. He walked everywhere he went, did whatever he needed to do. And he's the son of God that brought all things into being by the word of his mouth. But in meekness, he came and humbled himself to come to earth and add to himself humanity. And so within this, Paul says, I'm coming to you with this attitude that's in Christ, this attitude of weakness. The difficulty that we find in the church leaders and in church leadership, we find it even today in church leadership, it's hard to discipline people. A lot of times they look at pastors and, and spiritual leaders as when you have to discipline somebody, they want you to come in and, and I'll come around and we'll, we'll have a hug and we'll have a prayer and sing Kumbaya and all that. Sometimes you need to go to somebody in a spirit of meekness and say, look it, I love you brother, but you're being a jerk. You need to knock it off. You need to be straightforward. So, well, that's not very loving. No, it's loving because if I let you continue doing what you're doing, you're going to destroy the people around you and yourself. And exercising that power under control. And so many times we, we try to balance things out. And they say, well, if you're a real Christian, you wouldn't do that. No, I am a real Christian, just like Christ, who turned the tables over in the temple. And he comforted the woman that was caught in the act of adultery. He never thought himself to be more than what he needed to for the situation. And that was the case for Paul. Paul came down hard in his confrontation. One of the things that he needed to do is he needed to contract, con correct these uh, attitudes that they had. And what's interesting about this is Paul in his letter, he's writing very harshly. Why? Because he sends this letter out with Titus and sends this letter and says, look, when you get this letter, read this because I'm not messing around. And the hopes that the letter would bring about the correction so that when he gets there, he doesn't have to do the correcting. But when he comes in, he's going to come in the spirit of meekness. Not going to yell or not going to scream. He's not going to throw a fit. But he is going to come in and take care of the business. Galatians 1, 6 1 says this, and it really is the attitude of, of Paul here. He says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, meekness, the same word. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. We all sin and we all have fallen short of the glory of God and we continue to sin. We should never go to somebody in a spirit of, of haughtiness, but in meekness, looking for restoration. That's what Paul's looking for here. He did ask them earlier in 1 Corinthians 4.21, 
about how they want him to approach them. In harshness with a rod, or in meek like a taskmaster, or in meekness like a father. In First Corinthians four twenty one it says, What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or the love and the spirit of gentleness? Do you want me to come to you as a slave driver or as a dad? Because there's a difference. And I think that it's important. I, I know that many times growing up, I was probably not the most obedient child. And my mom would ask me really simple, silly questions. I'd get caught doing something I, I shouldn't be. And she goes, do you want a spanking? And obvious, what's the obvious answer? No. No. But thinking about this as an adult, I could have really blown her mind. Yes, Mom, I do. But we think about this. This is kind of what Paul's doing as a father to his kids. He says, look at how do you want me to come to you? As a taskmaster or in the spirit of gentleness? Paul had a specific method for his ministry and, and how he was going to come. In verses 2 to 6, he says that when I come present, I want to come bold. He, he's not going to use, though, the world tactics. A pros to come... Courageous, some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. When you get into conflict with people and you're trying to resolve that conflict, you have to choose your battleground. Paul says, I choose not to be in the battleground of the flesh. When you're addressing an issue, you can either address it in the flesh or you can address it in the spirit. Now, Question, which one is going to be more profitable? In the flesh or in the spirit? For sure the spirit. So he says the weapons of our warfare are not in the flesh. What are the weapons of the flesh that these these super apostles were using to try to battle against Paul? Defamation of character. Gossip. Lies. Deceit. Intolerance, all of these things. They were challenging Paul's authority in his position of leadership. They would tell lies about Paul and say, look at he changed his travel plans. He really doesn't care about you. His first letter was really harsh against you. He doesn't love you. How many times has Satan told you, God doesn't love you? Or you look at situations with, that are going on and you say, well, if God really loved me. This is Satan's lie to try to discredit God in your own eyes. He's a deceiver. And so these false apostles that wanted to take the church of Corinth with them were trying to turn the whole church against Paul within this. And so Paul says, I'm not going to fight on their battleground. I'm going to fight using spiritual weapons. Well, what is the greatest spiritual weapon that you could use? Prayer. Prayer, the gospel, truth. These are all spiritual weapons that we have. And he says, then we can bring down strongholds. When we think about a stronghold, what is the stronghold? The stronghold is the place, the fortress. How do you break down something that is fortified in a person's mind? Can you use it using carnal tactics and and fleshly tactics or spiritual? Spiritual. The carnal tactics are debate. Have you ever gotten into a debate with somebody? And it's a no-win situation. An argument with somebody and, and use an accusatory and all of these things of the flesh. 
These are not the weapons that a Christian should use to break the stronghold. Why do we need to break the stronghold? Because it is, the stronghold is the way that they are thinking. How do you break somebody's thought pattern? Prayer. God's Word. Giving truth. Trusting in God for the outcome. Using these, these weapons for strongholds. This gospel that's there. It's the battle of the mind within that. And touching that spirit. The problem is this prideful thinking was their stronghold. You're not going to tell me what to do. You're not going to tell me how to think. My truth is my truth. Doesn't that become a stronghold in people's thought life? How do you break through that? Well, again, prayer, the gospel, truth, faith. A lot of people will say in their individuality, I think. Here's how you can break it down. I'm not going to give you what I think. I'm going to give you what God's Word says. Take them to the Word of God. Because it's the Word of God. People don't want your opinion. They want the truth. Take them to the Word of God that is there. And using these to break down their thought life and their, their stinking thinking, as I say. One of the, Paul's concerns was that Satan had trapped the thinking of the church of Corinth and got them thinking a certain way. Question. Has Satan trapped the minds of the people of the world today? How? So, if, if there is a stinking thinking that's going on about a situation or a lifestyle or a behavior that's in the world today, can I attack it with facts and win? No, because they're going to go on Google and they're going to find all the facts that they want to find and they're going to bring them against you. Can I, can I accuse somebody of misbehavior and try to guilt them to change. Nope. Prayer, the gospel, truth, all things that you, and for your faith are all things that we need to use to fight against Satan. How did Jesus fight against Satan in the temptations? Word of God, Matthew chapter 4. Within this, Satan has captured the thought lives of many in our church today. Corinth was a church. And there's a lot of churches today that have their thoughts held captive. They're slaves to Satan's thinking, just like the church at Corinth. And the only way to break down that stronghold is using spiritual weapons to bring those things down. Do not get into debates or endless genealogies, but use, and don't fight using their tools, but you fight using God's tools. Paul's point was to open their eyes. He said, I want to open your eyes so that you can see what's in front of you. One of his goals, if you take a look at verse 5, he says, We are what? Destroying speculations and lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. When you think about a stronghold, if you get this picture of a castle, right? That's a stronghold. Well, once we break down the walls of the stronghold, then Paul is saying, go in and take captive the people that are living in that stronghold and make them slaves unto Christ. In other words, bring them out of that stronghold and bring them into that, that place of obedience unto Christ. And how do we do that? That's the gospel. Where you, where you surrender your life over to Christ to be able to be in that place. 
Paul is also fighting against some of the verbal attacks. How many of you have ever been verbally attacked by unbelievers or even by people within the church? Times when people have said things about you that's not true, such things because of, of their opinion. He says, look at this is this. Is, he says, you are looking at things as they were outwardly, outwardly. The world's position is outwardly. They were basically going to Paul saying, Paul, you have no authority over us. You, you have no authority here. Just go away. Leave us alone within this. They didn't want Paul to have authority over them because Paul was holding them accountable. And he said, the problem is, is you're only looking on the surface. You're, you're not seeing the deep root. And Paul saw the deep root of the, co- the cause of what was going on. You ever heard the old saying, that you don't judge a book by its cover? Right? You really got to get into it to be able to see. And so what Paul was doing was challenging him. He says, look it, you're judging me based on what these guys are saying about me. There's, there's some people that say, well, you know, so this about Carrie or that about Carrie or whatever. And I'm like, I've never met them. How do they know anything? you got to get to know the person. And Paul was saying, they just don't know me. But the carnal Christian judges everything based on appearance, just like the world does. Don't judge people based on the outward impression, your general impression. Get to know them. The church had pushed Paul off because they were listening to these false teachers. One of the things that they were saying in, in here in, in verse 7 on also is that Paul is not somebody that really means what he says. He's all bark and no bite. He's, he does these great swelling words, but when you look at him, he's just a little mealy mouth guy. He has absolutely no power behind him. They weren't impressed by Paul or his words or his credibility, so they were moving him off and saying, well, you are, you're, you're not really an apostle. Let's see. Road to Damascus, met Jesus personally, and was able to do miracles, to be able to preach the word with boldness and, and all of these things. And, by the way, Corinth, he's the whole reason why you exist as a church. They've forgotten Paul's response to them, though, in 7b through 9 and also verse 11, he says this, that if, it is, if anyone is confident in himself, then he is Christ. Let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so were we. You want to judge? Don't judge yourself against an individual. Judge yourself against Christ. Who are you against Christ? And one of the things that Paul says is, I've been authorized by the power of Jesus. Verse 8. For even I boast somewhat further of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you. I will not be put to shame. Paul held his responsibility with high regard. He says, look it, Jesus put me in charge of you. Do you realize that Paul felt the pressure of having to give an answer for the church of Corinth? Every pastor feels the pressure of having to give an answer for the people that he serves. And when one of the sheep goes away, or when one of the sheep sins or they, they fall away, it, it, it hurts because you feel responsible for them. 
What did I do? What did I not do? I got to give an account with these things. And Paul, within this, says, look it. Jesus put me in charge for you to be here. And Paul had every right, credentials from Jesus, to be able to boast the fact that they're there. But the Corinthians were boasting in their own philosophy. Have you ever been around a teenager that thinks that they know more than you? There might be one or two around. I was having a conversation with my daughter uh, earlier this week when we were at, at camp. We were having this conversation, and she, she works with um, high school students down at Thurston High School. And I asked her a question, because she's, she's in the thick of it. I said, why do you think that these kids are so hard to handle? In this day and age, this group of kids is so different than the, the group of kids that I ministered to in my youth group when I, in the 80s and the 90s. Way different. And so we got to talking, and we both agreed to the fact that Google has become a problem. Because if they want to find out something, they Google it, and when they Google it, they become the instant authority of it. And now because they've somebody either tweeted it or TikToked it or did something with it, now they're the instant authority of it, and as an adult, you can't tell them any different because they saw it on the Internet. And so we look at this, this God of the world that has infiltrated our kids and created a problem because they're listening to this false prophet that I would say even is speaking through the Internet, not even a human within this. The Corinthians, at this point, believed that they were wiser than Paul, that they're smarter than Paul, that they could... They had more authority because of their own wisdom. And they would argue with Paul and say, Paul, you don't have the authority over us. Humanistic pride is very, very dangerous. When they don't want to listen, they know it all. Verses 9 through 11, he says, I don't wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. As they say, his letters are weighty and strong. In other words, they're... There's tough letters, but he says, let such a person consider this, that we, what we are in word, when absent, such persons we are also indeed. You want to test me? Wait till I get there. We'll find out whether or not I can follow through on my actions and what I think. They're going to learn that Paul is, such, is just as much a lion in person as he is in writing his letters with these, these heavy weights. Now keep in mind, Paul's goal is not to tear the church down. Paul's goal is to build the church up. But sometimes you have to confront the sin and you have to deal with the issue and, and be really, really hard in order to build the person up. Again, in our culture today, we have a, we have a, uh, a cultural norm today. It's called antinomialism. You know what antinomialism is? It means anti against the law. In other words, what has happened is society has said to law enforcement, those that are enforced the law, you can't enforce the law on us anymore. And you get enough of people that say you can't enforce the law anymore, then you end up with what? Anarchy. Anarchy was going on in Corinth going on in our world today. 
in this, we've got to understand that, that God has called us to a high standard. What should we do? We should understand that we all have to give an answer. Paul for himself, he says, look it, I don't answer to you, Church of Corinth. I am not here to please you. I answer to one, and his name is Jesus. 1 Corinthians 4.4 4 says this, For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. What would it be like if leadership said, look it, I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear. I'm going to tell you what you need to hear because I answer to God. What would it be like if parents were to say to their kids, I'm not going to please you right now because right now, quite frankly, you're being a jerk. But I have to give an answer to God for you. And so then I'm going to train you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to grow you. Why? Because I have to give an answer to the Lord. And that's what Paul said. That was his motive. He loved them enough, but he loves the Lord more. And he says, look it, I am going to be hard on you because you're going astray. We need to train our kids. Paul, in verses 12, 3, gives a comparison. He says this, for we are not bold uh, to class or compare ourselves. We are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves, notice, measure themselves by themselves, and compare themselves with themselves, they're without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us a measure to reach as, as far as you. Have you ever talked with somebody who says, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so? I'm okay because I'm not as bad as this. I can always find ten people worse than me. Right? Paul says, look at, I'm not comparing myself against these other false prophets and, and people. He's not boasting about it. He's just saying, look at, you're looking at the wrong source, the wrong example. The problem with the church of Corinth is they were boasting in their own efforts because they were checking themselves against each other. And, and how bad they were. The Pharisees were boasting because they weren't as bad as the publicans. You remember the account? Pharisee and publican go and they're off to pray and Pharisee's praying with himself. He says, I thank you, God, I'm not like this guy. If you think you're holy, you only think you're holy because you're comparing yourself against another person. But what happens when you compare yourself against Christ? It's a very humbling, humbling event. If you think you got it all together and you're better, I'm not as bad as this person, stop it. How am I compared to Christ? If you call yourself a Christian, by definition, Christian it means little Christ. There's only one that you compare yourself to. Paul doesn't compare himself against other people, as verse 12 says, as they were measuring themselves against others, and these false leaders were measuring themselves against even Paul's ministry, because... They were all puffed up at their knowledge. In fact, 1 Corinthians 8.1 says this. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. God doesn't care how much you know. God cares how much you love. You can know a hundred Bible verses, but if you are loveless, then all of that knowledge does you absolutely no good. Love builds up. 
And Corinth had, had drifted away from that. And Paul further says, only a fool compares himself against another fool. And I'm not as much of a fool as that guy within that. But we need to check ourselves against Christ. And that's what he says in 13. I'm, I'm being measured against Christ. And I can, I can boast because of being in that place, measured against Christ. He would write in Romans chapter 15, 17 to 18, Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I found reason for boasting in these things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. You want to brag? Brag about what Jesus does through you. Let that be your bragging point. Because then God's getting the glory. Not you. Paul really desired the church for himself. He really saw them as his kids. Verses 14 to 18, he goes on, he says, For we're not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you. For we were the first to come, as even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. Not boasting beyond our measure, that is, with other men's labors, but with a hope that is your faith grows. We will be within our sphere, enlarged more by you. Note, so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you, not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another, but he who boasts is to boast where? In the Lord. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. Paul's goal was that he wouldn't brag on himself, but that God would brag on him. Can you think of somebody in the Bible that God bragged on? guy by the name of Job. I often pray, God, don't brag on me. Because <laughs> look at what happened to Job. Didn't, you know, Satan comes up and he says, yeah, where you been? Well, I've been roaming the earth. Have you considered my servant Job? He's a righteous man. Shh, don't tell anybody. Yeah, he's righteous because you've got a hedge around him. Remove your hedge. Let me after him. I'll show you how righteous he is. God says, bring it on. Carrie's translation. And you look at it. And, he, and God allowed all of that difficulty. Why? Because God wanted to be able to brag on Job and allow Job to be tested. Now, I'm sure Job and God did not have a conversation before the testing and let him know ahead of time, this is coming down the pike. Don't mess it up. No. Job's character was revealed through fire. And he shined. And in the end, God honored double what he had lost in the trial itself. Paul said, look it. My desire for you as the church is that your faith will grow. He had established that ministry in Acts chapter 18. Brought the message of the gospel to them. Didn't overstep his ministry like the Judaizers were doing at that point in time. And his goal was that through that ministry, the gospel would go out beyond Corinth. He wanted the gospel to move. And it really wasn't boasting about what was going on in Corinth, but what God had done through him in Corinth. His desire was that the church would grow, their testimony of faith would grow, that the ministry of the Gentiles would grow, because Paul, he saw the global evangelism as being the end goal, according to what Jesus had said. Great opportunity, and he had this personal desire 
to see them to preach the gospel to these regions beyond the borders. That the gospel would continue to move. Judaizers didn't care about the gospel moving. They just wanted to control people. And that shows you the difference between a true apostle or, or teacher and a false one. Because the false ones just want to build an empire to themselves. They're not building the kingdom of God. But a true apostle or disciple, one who is leading, will see the gospel moving. In fact, the gospel is meant to have feet. It's meant to move. It's meant to be able to travel the world. you imagine what it would be like if every believer, every Christ follower took this serious and said, I will share the gospel 24-7 beyond the borders wherever I go? How long do you think it would take to evangelize the whole world if every believer became a missionary and took it to heart? It would happen so fast. So fast. But we believe the deceptions of building silos and staying within ourselves. The other thing that I think that is interesting in this is that Paul didn't care how big the ministry was. Just how productive it was. Lots of times when pastors get together, one of the first things that they say, Hi, you're, you're pastoring at church so-and-so, XYZ. Yeah, I'm over here. How big is your congregation? In, invariably, that is, that is, how many people are attending your church? And, you know, I got convicted of that a, a, a while back. Because what difference does it make if there's five people that attend or 500 people? What are you doing with those people? If those are the ones that God has brought to you. And how are you using, equipping those people to go beyond that ministry that is there? I do believe that God has called us to go out. And I love our church and the fact that we, we have a good number of missionaries that go out. And we have, between VBS and all the different things that we do, we have it going out. But that's not enough. People are still dying and going to hell because they don't know the gospel, even in Columbia County. As was the case that I, I went and visited families that, that have lost loved ones, even recently. Don't know the gospel. And it makes me sad. What can we boast? We can boast in the fact that God is moving us. And Paul was trying to boast in the fact that the gospel was going out. He says, let him who boasts, verse 17, boast in the Lord. That's a quote out of Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24, where he says, but let him boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises hesed, loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And what is Paul's end goal? That he'll be approved by God. What is the end goal? You ever want to know at the end of a prayer when I say, you know, and God, may what we do make you smile? That's it. Approved by God. Where God would look down and have a grin on, on his face. Chapter 11, Paul continues on with the same conversation. Going a little bit deeper, and he explains his jealousy. He continues to defend himself in, against these, as we're going to see, super apostles that were really deceivers. They weren't there. And he says, I wish that you were, uh, you bear with me a little foolishness, for indeed you are bearing with me, for I am jealous for you 
with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I may present you as a pure virgin. He says, I'm jealous over you, this godly jealousy. It was this jealousy that moved Paul's heart. And when we hear that word jealousy, what do we think of? Envy? Uh, resentment? But no, it's, this word jealousy is, is the kind of godly jealousy that God has. God is jealous for you. It is a loving devotion. In Exodus 20, verse 5, it says, You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. I am jealous for you. I don't want to share you with anybody because I love you that much. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's the, it's the jealousy or the devotion that a, a man would have over his wife or his wife over her husband. But what was happening is the church was dividing over a challenge of leadership and authority where these people were coming and they were ripping the church apart within this. These super apostles that were coming in were creating a, a tear apart. And Paul was saying, no, you can't do this. So he says, put up with me for a moment. I'm going to be foolish. You're going to think I'm a fool for a minute. Just bear with me. Because Paul's message was very simple and it was full of zeal. This is where Paul acts like a father and the church would be like a daughter where Paul is saying, I want to present you, church, my daughter, to Christ. I want to present you, my daughter, to Christ as a virgin. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9, it says, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and the sound of the mighty peals of thunder. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride, being the church, has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen of the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Right blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. What is Paul saying to Corinth? Look at You're flirting with adultery, listening to these false prophets, these semi-apostles, all of these people. He says, Knock it off. I am jealous over you as a father over his daughter. And having been a father of three girls, I can tell you this. The thought of them going out on a date raged jealousy, a devotion. If that boy would even think about that, and we had some pretty strict rules. My kids could, they weren't allowed to start dating until they were 16, and only then it was double dating. They couldn't go out on a single date until they were 18. And if it was to go out with somebody I didn't know, then they had to come over to my house, and I would have them for dinner. As a guest. But I can tell you this. That is the Father's prerogative. To have that kind of jealous devotion for their, their daughter because you want to be able to present her to her husband in purity. And Paul saw the church as that. 
God sees the church as that. And we have these false apostles that are coming into Corinth that are trying to draw them away with a false doctrine within this. And Paul had great passion to drive these false teachers away and protect the church. Because he was concerned, verses 3 and 4, he says this, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness of mind, you will be led astray from the simplicity, the purity, and devotion of Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom you've not, who we've not preached, or received a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. In other words, you take it. What are we concerned about? Well, these super apostles were acting like Satan. They were coming and deceiving. Well, how does a deceiver deceive? He makes something look really good in order to get you to do what you shouldn't do. In Genesis chapter 3, how did Satan deceive? What was the tool he used? And it works every time. He used this phrase, did God really what? Say. Did God really say? Doubt. Doubting God's word. Doubting God's authority. Did God really say? It's not going to be like that. And that's what these super apostles were doing. Did Paul really say? Does this? And so he says, if someone comes and preaches another Jesus or another gospel, are there people today that preach a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible? For sure. They'll tell you things like Jesus is Satan's brother. Or, or Jesus was just a prophet. Or he was just a good teacher. Or Jesus is a figment of somebody's imagination. All of these different things. That's a different Jesus. They'll teach a different Jesus, a different crucifixion, a different plan of salvation. And they come in and they lie. We know that apostasy is a mark of the end times. In 1 Timothy 4, 1 says this, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to, note, deceitful spirits and doctrines of who? Devils. Do you know that today, as we take a look at categorically, church attendance and those that are professing Christians that our numbers have diminished by over 20% in the in the last 30 years, I think it is. We've dropped below the 70% mark. I think we're in that 54 percentile right now. There are less people going to church today, more people exiting and going away. And people are, that are leaving that aren't coming back. People that are left because of COVID are not coming back to church. Why? Because they're paying attention to the doctrines of demons. Doctrines of demons. What do doctrines of demons teach? That God's Word isn't really God's Word. That God's Word is relevant to your situation. So if your situation dictates a certain lifestyle, and you like that lifestyle, well, that part of God's Word you don't have to pay attention to. Does that happen today? Absolutely it does. And it's a challenge for us as believers. Within this, they were also teaching, and, and these, these super apostles were teaching that Paul is not really a good teacher. 
In verses 5 through 7, he says, or 5 and 6, he says, For I consider myself not in least inferior in the most of the apostles, but even if I'm unskilled, if I'm unskilled and I'm not, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. So he says, look at some of these guys are saying that I'm not a very good teacher. I'm not as eloquent as they are. Question. Would you rather have somebody who's got a silver tongue and lies or someone that talks like a regular person and tells the truth? I'd rather have the truth than have somebody with a silver tongue or tickle my ears or, you know, that kind of a thing. There's a lot of people that, that are good orators that will speak great lies. There are a lot of people that are charismatic in their behavior, but they're speaking lies of demons. And people fall into that. 1 Corinthians 2.1, Paul would say this about himself, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I didn't make myself to be something... But I did bring you the truth. Wherever you go, listen to the one that speaks the truth. Why else should they believe in Paul? Well, you ever heard the saying, actions speak louder than words? Verses 7 through 12 says, this is what I've done. I've provided for myself, and I'm not taking money from you for myself. I'm not fleecing you as are these apostles. But he asked this question in verse 7, Did I commit sin, humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached you the gospel to you without charge. I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows. I do. So what they were saying is, well, Paul really doesn't care about you. And Paul's just in it for the money. And Paul says, no, I'm not in it for the money. In fact, when I was with you, I never took a dime from you. The poorer churches in Macedonia gave me enough money to be able to live in Corinth, to be able to be here with you, and I don't have to mooch off of you. I don't have to be in that place. I'm not demanding money. Hear me clearly. The gospel is free. The gospel is free. Never, ever should anyone charge for the presentation of the gospel. Paul worked hard to make sure that, that his message was not for money. The problem with the church of Corinth is their culture was shaping their convictions. And they got to this place where they were used to paying and they wanted to be able to pay and these false prophets would come in and say, yeah, I'll be your speaker, but here's my contract. And you've got to pay me so much money to come and speak. And I know of pastors that do that. Yeah, I'll come and speak, but here's my contract. I want X amount of dollars. I want my private hotel room. And I want my, this, this particular kind of water in my room. And I want these snacks in this room. And all of these other things. Now granted, it is good to honor the speaker with an honorarium. Especially those that make their living from the gospel should receive 
that from the gospel. But in my opinion, and again, this is my opinion, wherever the gospel is presented, it should be done for free, without charge. Years ago, there was a, in the, gosh, I, I would say in the 80s and into the 90s, contemporary Christian music was a method of evangelism. If you, if you were around at that time, if you were a believer at that time, you knew that you could go, churches were having Christian concerts like crazy. And they were coming in by the droves. People were coming in. The concerts were always free. Always free. And I remember doing that. And, and booking bands and having bands come and, and Christian artists that were coming. And then they realized that they could make their living from that and that was fine. And so then they would say to the church, yeah, I'd like to be able to come, but I'd like to charge. And the churches I worked at said, no, we're not going to charge. The gospel is going to be free. But we are going to give you an honorarium. And so we would give them an honorarium. And that worked for a little while until the honorarium stopped being like $500. Then it got up to $1,200. Then it got up to $5,000. And then it was, well, we want a green room with this kind of food and all of these other things in order to do that. You don't find free Christian concerts very much anymore, do you? I believe it's because God shut the door because they were abusing that privilege within that. Paul said, I even robbed Macedonia. And it doesn't mean he robbed, but he used the money that the Macedonians had to be able to pay for Corinth and to be able to be there for Corinth. And then when he needed to, he worked. He was a free evangelist and he wanted to make the gospel free within that. But what had happened is, as I said, society had gotten into Corinth and then they started really messing things up. So then Paul says this, and as he closes this out, he, he, he says, this is a threat. Here is the threat that I'm going to deal with. The Judaizers. Verses 13 to 15. Um, I'm sorry, verses 12 to 15. He says, but what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire the opportunity to be regarded as we are, the false prophets, is a matter that they are boasting. Such men are false prophets, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. And he says, here's the problem. These Judaizers, these deceivers, they look like Christians. Angels of light. Satan will present himself as an angel. Is Satan an angel? Yes, but he's an angel of darkness. Light and darkness can't dwell in the same place. They're opposites. And so Satan will present himself as an angel of light. Why? So you'll believe him. If Satan showed up in, in your house and said, Hey, you know what? I'm Satan. I'm here to destroy you and your household and everything. I'm going to plague you. I'm going to cause diseases. And I just want you to know that. Will you pledge your allegiance to me? After I am... The Prince of Darkness. Would, would you, you'd look at him and you'd go, are you nuts? Get out of here. But he has so deceived people that there is a whole church of Satan. And others that are not named as that, but follow after that. And the same thing was happening in Corinth. They were being deceived within this. Serving for their own benefit. And the root of deception is Satan. We've got to call them out. And he calls them out. And he says they are liars and that they are deceivers. Because they're following their master. 
Paul finishes with, this is how much I love you. Verse 16. And again, I say, let no one think me to be foolish. But if you do, receive me as foolish. And in other words, you think I'm a fool? That's okay. So that I also may boast a little. What I'm saying is, I'm not saying as the Lord would be in foolishness in this confidence boast, since many boast according to the flesh. But I'm going to boast. For you being so wise and tolerant of the foolish gladly, for you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. In other words, I'm a fool because I don't treat you like the abuser. He says, look it. I have never abused you. You're the fool that lets somebody abuse you. He says, why would you allow yourself to be abused? And we think about that today. Would you allow somebody to hit you? Take all of your money? Treat you poorly? People do. They join cults. And that's all part of the deception. Paul says, I guess I'm a fool because I don't do that. I just love you. How much do I love you? He makes a list. Listen to his list. To my shame. Call me a fool because I love you this much. Whatever respect in anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold as myself. Are they all Hebrews or Jews? I am. Are they Israelites? I am. Are they descendants of Abraham? I am. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I am. I, more so laborers and far more imprisonments. Beaten times without numbers, often in danger. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep or in the, in the oceans. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers in rivers and dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is daily pressures on me of concern for all of the churches. Who is weak without being weak and who is led into sin without intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the Anarch under Aratus, the king of the guardian of the city of Damascenes, in order to seize me, and I was let down in the basket through the window into the wall, and so escaped his hands. You want to know how much I love you? I went through all of that. I guess I'm a fool. When we consider Paul's credentials for ministry, the things that we see is the love that motivated him to the nth degree of self-sacrifice. And what did the false apostles do? Absolutely nothing but take. Paul sacrificed everything. Beaten up, shipwrecked, stoned, whipped. All of these things, imprisoned. Why? Why would he do that? For love. And what were these super apostles doing? They were going to Corinth and saying, pay me. Who are you going to follow? I followed the fool. 
because he's a fool for Christ. 1 Corinthians 4.10 We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. I'm going to follow the one that is a fool for Christ's sake, that doesn't give up, because it's the love of Christ that constrains me. You think about all the things that you can do. You can do a lot of different things. You could be out somewhere else, but you're here. Why? Because you want to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know what it's like to be able to know the living God. You want to know the truth of God's Word. So that when the angel of light comes, you're going to be able to see him as the deceiver and call him out. Why are people deceived? Because they don't know the Word of God. They just follow the herd right off the cliff. Don't follow the herd, please. Follow Christ. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that we can trust in you. Lord, as Paul was passionate for the church at Corinth to confront the deceivers, those that were using the church for their own means, the self-deception, Lord, may we challenge that in our world today. But to do that, we have to be grounded in Your Word, led by Your Spirit. We must embrace those that are in leadership over us, And know that what they're bringing us is your word. And check what is being taught. Father, I pray for our church and the churches in South Columbia County. That we would no longer be led by self-centered, self-seeking, false leaders. But we go to you, Lord Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before endured the cross, despised the shame. And seated at the right hand. God, you are the author and finisher of our faith. May we trust in you. As we close out tonight, let's make this song our prayer, our commitment, and honor God with our voices.
for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.